Thank you. I'm here. I'm here, Tyson. Good to have you worshiping with us this morning. And want to introduce our new brother in Christ to you. Chris, if you could stand up, bro. He's baptized Friday night. So now if you want to really confuse somebody in our fellowship, you can say, hey, Chris. Because we have Chris. We have Chris. And we have Chris. So if you say something similar to that, you just see how they all respond. Or you can say, hey, Chris and John. And just kind of see what happens. Because we have heaps of Johns as well. So welcome to the fellowship, bro. It's great to have you in the part of the campus and professional ministry. Also, John and Aaron Hunter are back from wherever they were. Ireland? Canada. Canada. It's kind of the same thing, eh? You get, you get in trouble. I, I don't want to pick a fight. Um, so also recently we were able to serve at the Ronald McDonald House. And every year our church has an opportunity to partner with them and serve at Starship Hospital for kids that are in the hospital. And so I want to show you briefly what it looked like. And just first of all, give a big thanks to the entire church because it is a big project. But there were many people who helped out in very specific ways. On last Sunday, we prepared some of the games and some of the food, and that was great. And some of the people helped prepare all the props and et cetera. But I, I want to show you what it looked like so that you can get a feel for it and feel grateful, first of all, for our church and the way that we served, but also to inspire you to serve more like this in the community and upcoming when we have opportunities. So these are the pirates of the Caribbean. And they that was the theme of the night. So they all dressed up as pirates and helped the kids play games with pirate theme and eat pirate theme food. So that's, what the, that's the intro of what it looked like. And then several things went on. This is the whole team. There's several ways that they serve. We prepare the food first of all and then we take the food there and people cook it and then they serve it and then there's another team that helps entertain the children that are there as well so that's everybody that was serving with the food bit and uh, they all have their pirate themed bandanas on looks pretty awesome and here is the Filipino pirates I really didn't know what to say about this one So I'll keep going. But what I did find is that Carlos seems to pop up in quite a few of them. And it actually took me a while to figure out who that was. (laughs) That's a little bit scary. He seemed to enjoy his role too much. Uh, There's Tony. He kind of looks like the pirate as well with the bandana helping to serve. And then once again... Carlos. No, but there, see, there, it, it's good because there is a time where you get to interact with the families and the kids. It, and for me personally, that's the most moving time because you get to interact with these families and children who are in a pretty desperate spot. And this night really brings a lot of joy to them. People give up, people stand up and give speeches and thank the church for helping serve. So it's a good opportunity for us to really connect to those at the hospital. There's mixing and mingling more on the left with the food prep and on the right, those are the 
pirate ladies of the Caribbean and the South Pacific. And uh, the face painting and all that kind of stuff happened up at the top. And then I'm sure Pete is telling Cornelius something about, do you know how much fresh fish we got, mate? Because he was really fired up about the catch that we scored there. So um, lots of cool stuff, lots of great memories, lots of opportunities to connect to one another in the community. And to all he who helped, may your treasure be in heaven. So thank you, everybody, who helped. But specifically, Lizelle helped out with all the props. And uh, so thanks, Lizelle. She did a great job with that. And then Aaron McDonald organized the catering, which is a massive thing. So thank you so much, Aaron. And... Pete Nesbitt, who's with the kids, he's the one that gathered lots of people to sponsor stuff for that, which was a massive thing, uh, which helped me like, hey, if, we be, if we're bold, man, people give. Uh, so that's what he did. So thanks, Pete, so much for all of that. And all the Hope Committee that met frequently to figure out all these details and how this would work. Thank you so much. There's many people that we could thank, but we don't want to have an Oscar speech. So thank you to the Hope Committee and all those who helped serve. That's awesome. Pete, Pete went to these people and asked for donations. I think one of the most impressive was the Sanford's Fisheries. They donated fish they had not even caught yet. That's how fresh it was, right? Is that, is that true? And there was heaps of it. And I heard that that fish was really good. So thank you, Pete, for organizing that. And those are the other places that helped donate as well. So amen. It was an awesome night. Continue to uh, pray that we can still find ways to connect and serve the community. Amen. Fantastic. Also... Each, Wednesday, each first Wednesday of the month, we start to pray for Wellington. And so this, this Wednesday is the first Wednesday of the month. And what we want to invite the entire church to do, or even because we have some from Fiji as well, our brothers and sisters from the church there. So you can pray for us every Wednesday, every first Wednesday of the month. We want to really pray for Wellington because we're going to plant a church there. And if, if you're wondering what you can pray for, there are some specific things. We need church leaders. So we, we have some ideas, but we need God to make it crystal clear. That's an important bit. We also need a mission team. We have lots of people that want to go, but that's also a very important bit that needs to go. And we also need some finances. So pray that God can continue to stir people's hearts and our own church can contribute as well. But pray specifically for those things. This Wednesday is the first Wednesday of July. So it's Wellington Wednesday. Let's pray for those things. And also for our brothers and sisters in Wellington who are watching online now. How you doing? Right on Rachel, Hannah, and everybody else who's at their house. And we're going to be praying for you guys that the gospel continues to spread. Amen. Fantastic. If you have a Bible, open it up to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'm going to pray briefly, and then we'll read some of this text and talk about two things this morning from this passage. Father, we're very privileged to worship you, and as was very powerfully shared during the communion, we can trust you. You're trustworthy. All of your promises are yes in Christ, and it's a privilege to come before you with everyone gathered and sing and fellowship, and then read your word and have it open our mind and have it open our hearts, and we pray that you grant us understanding so that we can hear truth and apply it to our lives, God, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we're taking a little bit of time to read a chapter, discuss it. That's what we do every Sunday. We just chronologically work through a book. So here we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 5. Let's read together a few verses, starting in verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much 
grieve me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. And it's important that those are grouped together. Forgiving somebody, but then comforting them in addition. Not just, I forgive you, good luck, but forgiveness and comfort. So that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you to see was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, verse 12. When I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? No one. That's the answer to that question. In verse 17, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. And so from this, we continue to hear Paul. The whole context is the Corinthian church thinks that Paul is a bit too bold. He suffers quite a bit. His life is a series of an unfortunate events. And they look at him and they say, how can you be so bold, Paul, telling us how to live in Christ? And so embedded in this letter is his response. The reason I can be so bold is because we have a far superior ministry and Jesus is always triumphing. Therefore, I can be bold. And so this morning, let's look at two things he wants the church in Corinth and also us to know. First of all is the schemes of Satan. That's a good first point, isn't it? Talking about the schemes of Satan. That's what it says in verse 11. Forgive him so that Satan might not outwit us, implying that that's what Satan's trying to do, and then we are not aware, unaware of his schemes. That's a Greek word that has to do with your mind. So you're thinking about things behind the scenes, and it produces a result. So there's this fact that Satan is kind of constantly and intentionally and deliberately thinking and scheming against not just the church, but the entire world. And whatever those schemes are, those manifest themselves in, in different ways. And so that's his perp. That's what he's doing. And so what in the world do these verses have to do with schemes of Satan? Well, we're going to find out. But throughout the Bible, Satan is referred to very specifically as a schemer in this passage. He's referred to as the accuser. 
So when you feel like someone's accusing you mentally or in your head, you feel like you're not good enough and you hear these thoughts and you hear this dialogue, that's the role of Satan. Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. He's the sifter. Luke 23, verse 31, Jesus says, hey, Peter, Satan has specifically asked to sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you. <laughs> That's kind of, okay, uh, amen. What does that mean? But Satan is trying to sift people. He's the prowler. That's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He's prowling around like a lion looking for weak people. He's the blinder. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says he blinds minds. So there are some very specific references to Satan kind of scowling the earth and, and looking for ways to blind people, to accuse people, to sift people, and all in order to scheme against the world and against the church. But in this passage, it's a little bit different, right? There's, there's somebody that has offended somebody. That's what we see. If you look at verse 6, it says the punishment inflicted on him. So there's obviously somebody that is being referred to. Verse 7, you've got to forgive the guy and comfort him. Verse 8, reaffirm your love for him. So obviously in the church, in Corinth, there was somebody that had offended the church and Paul. And now Paul's saying, okay, enough is enough. Forgive him and welcome him back. So who was this guy? There's lots, of, there's lots of theories, but the most likely candidate, if you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to hold your place here and look back, you can, you can quickly see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul's dealing with a, a situation in Corinth, and he says in verse 5, Hand that man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There was a man at church sleeping with his mother-in-law, and the church in Corinth accepted it. Paul hears about it and says, no, that's not acceptable. Ask him to leave. All right. And now what they've done is they've swung the pendulum and been a bit too harsh. And now he hears about that and says, okay, he's changed. He's repented. Forgive him. Comfort him. Let him back. Right? So that Satan might not outwit us. And so when you think about this, what does this have to do with Satan's schemes? And what's the scheme here? What's the idea? And if you think about it, the church in Corinth had swung the pendulum to these two extremes, right? In 1 Corinthians 5, they were very relaxed. Somebody sleeping around. Hey, we love him. We all struggle with sin. No worries. We'll accept it. That's kind of laxed, isn't it? And on the other end of the spectrum, there's this inflexibility to forgive this, this rigid nature of he better learn his lesson. We're not letting him back until he's paid the full penalty. So do you see those two swings of the pendulum there? Right? And so one is like really relaxed, no worries, live as you want. Another one is like callously inflexible. And both can be schemes of Satan to prevent people from understanding grace. And so we have to be aware of this. And so initially in Corinth, it was like, everything goes. Because we're all Christian, no worries, let's just love one another. And then later in their Christian life, it was, nobody's allowed to come back. And so you, you see, my goodness, the, the, Satan is, is deliberately behind this, trying to scheme and say, be super relaxed or be super rigid. 
And both of those can be schemes by Satan to destroy the, the culture at large, but the church specifically. And the only way we can you know, avoid those is by looking directly at Jesus, because he avoids both of those extremes. He has high expectations, but he's also merciful and graceful, and model our lives after him, right? Because we don't find it in the culture. And so this idea of extremes on the left there, that's... Me this morning. No, it's not me this morning. It was very cold in these last... But not as far as cold as this village in Russia. Now that's a picture of someone who's got snow on their eyelashes. That's, that's like natural mascara going on there. That is the coldest settlement on the planet. There's only roughly 500 people that live there, and you wonder why. But there's roughly 500 people that live there, and in 1933, they had a recorded temperature of 60, negative 67 degrees Celsius. And you wake up this morning and be like, man, it's three degrees. (laughs) You know, that was, and, and, and and the average temperature is negative 50 degrees Celsius in the winter. That's just extreme. That's crazy. There's nobody in their right... Well, there's five, around 500 people in their somewhat right minds that choose to live there. But on the other extreme, there's the Lut Desert. It's close to Iran. And people can't even really live there. It's 70 degrees Celsius. That's flat out insane. Sometimes I feel like 23, 24. Whoo, it's getting hot. I talk to my family in Australia. And they're like, it's 30 there. And I'm like, whoa, man. It's... But then you talk to somebody over here. Yeah, it's 70. And that's insane, right? And, and both of these extremes is very little life. And so there's an insight spiritually too there. When, when we hit these extremes or we start flirting with something close to them, there's very little life there. And Satan is constantly trying to scheme to get us to hit these extremes spiritually. And you can see this in our culture today, right? On on one end of the spectrum, you can be relaxed like the frog there and just say, hey, it's all good. You know, everybody's going to find their own truth. That's kind of the thought process behind this Satan scheming. Hey, it's all good. You know what? I just need to find my own truth. Truth. I'll be who I want to be. I'll be authentic because everybody needs to find their own place. That's just a soup. Every, everybody just do what you want. Do what you feel. And this kind of deals into sexuality too. You know, do what you want, do what you feel, be authentic, find your own identity. That's kind of the lifestyle behind that lax posture. It shows up in parenting as well. This is an extreme, right? Just kind of a free-range parenting. You know, just do whatever you want. Oh, my kid's running around with scissors. Hopefully he'll learn that they're not good to play with. I'll just kind of let him learn that lesson. That's, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? And so we don't want that. No discipline. Everybody's a winner. That's kind of a far extreme. In church, you can have the same, someone sins. Hey, bro, thanks for confessing. We all sin. Thanks for sharing. We all struggle. Thanks for saying that. Keep fighting. I'll pray for you. Like that's an extreme relaxed version. But it, it kind of it has the mask of I love everybody. I tolerate everybody. But it's a scheme of Satan to just let whatever happens happen. And that's what went on initially in the church in Corinth. But on the other side is someone else that's not able to flex because they're inflexible. And so you can be on one of these two extremes as well, right? And you can be on this in your lifestyle. Everybody has to do it this way. 
And if you're not doing it this way, you're probably wrong. That's an inflexible mentality to have. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. That's kind of the inflexible attitude. It happens in parenting where you helicopter. One, one extreme is, hey, whatever you want to do, hopefully you don't get hurt. And the other option is you're just constantly hovering, smothering, helicoptering your kids and their strict discipline. And winning is everything. If you don't win, you don't matter. Whatever. But, but, but there's these extremes that happen. And, and it can happen in church too, right? You know, you know somebody has wronged you or someone has upset you. Well, you better spend the right amount of time repenting until we repair our relationship. Or in your Bible talk or in church or man, you know what? I hope they feel the bur- I hope they feel. I hope they feel it. Right? That's kind of this rigid inflexibility and and I and I sadly believe that that's how the world views church. When they start opening up about stuff they have going on in their lives, there, there's an overreaction, there's a stereotypical reaction from churches like, well, clearly what you're doing is wrong. Let me show you a Bible verse. You're going to hell. <laughs> Repent! Right? And so, unfortunately, sadly, that's how the world views church and religion. That's why they steer clear of it. And it's a scheme of Satan for this overreaction, inflexibility for people, and we, we have to steer clear of that, Right? You know, it's, it's a, a hot topic trending about sexuality. When someone with a different view or someone with a different variation of sexuality says something, the religious world is pouncing on that. Instead of having compassion and learning to say, wow, let, let me figure out how to even process that. That's very different than saying, well, clearly you're doing wrong and you're going to hell for it. Come back and see me when you're ready to change. Inflexible. And the other, the other end of the spectrum is, oh, it's all good. God loves everybody. Keep doing what you're doing. Neither of those work. They're both schemes of Satan. And you may think, well, I'm not relaxed. Maybe I'm not like that. I'm not kicked back and I'm not inflexible. But flirting with something similar will eventually get you there. When you flirt, you flirt to date. You flirt to spend time with somebody, to become close to them. When you flirt with something that's too relaxed, eventually you become relaxed. It's a scheme. When you flirt with being hard and callous and inflexible, eventually that's the way you come. The only solution is Jesus, who's like this wild, perfect blend of both. Like right in the middle, he has these high expectations and expects us to live up to them. But he's also extremely merciful and gracious, gracious and graceful. You know, think about the woman that's caught in adultery, publicly humiliated. He doesn't say, well, it's about time someone caught you in your sin. You know what? Go away. Sin no more. Expectation. You've got to change your lifestyle. But compassionate and merciful. Man, they've tried to publicly humiliate you. Man, what a unique blend of both of these. To Peter, Satan is asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. And when you turn back. Not, I know you're going to blow it. You're going to fail. You're going to fumble the ball. Game over for you. But when you turn back, I have a high expectation of you. And when you come back, I will embrace you. To Paul, the apostle. I know you used to be a terrorist that attacked my church. But now I want you to build my church. And you see that there's, there's nothing like that. And so that's why it's so important for us to focus on Jesus. Jesus. 
And that's what Paul is saying. You're looking at me. You should be looking at Jesus. It's a trap of leadership to try to be all things to all people. Oh, that's what the Bible calls us for. And Paul says, man, we've got to look at Jesus. We've got to be aware of, of, these, of these schemes of Satan. But the only true model is Jesus. And amen for that, right? I think young people are looking for high expectations. But they're also looking when they fail for somebody to say, hey, it's all good. Keep trying. I think men and women want that. The youth want these high expectations. And that's Jesus. He has the highest expectations. And when you blow it and when you fail, he's not saying, well, nice try. Your game's over. Keep trying. Keep going. As you grow older in your faith, you start to be attracted to that in Jesus. Like nothing else is like that. The whole world markets a different gospel. And you start to really zone in and see, man, Jesus is something unique. And then as you age as a Christian, you say, man, I'm worshiping because of that reason. I'm worshiping a God. I'm I'm worshiping this being who's uniquely blended to be full of mercy and grace. For you, do you let everything slide? Does everyone fail your expectations? Do you critique everything? We've got to always look to Jesus and let us not be unaware of the schemes of Satan. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we have to be triumphant in Jesus. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 12 through 17. And so if you hold, if you read, let's read verse 12 and 13 together. It says, now this is our boast. Sorry, that's chapter 1. Verse 12, now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Now hold your place there and turn over to chapter 7 for some Bible study gymnastics. Are you guys still there? Good. Just checking. There's Nick. I know to always start when I hear Nick. So if you read this in contrast, I'm going to read, so you've got your place in 2 Corinthians 7, look at verse 5, 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5, and listen to how this stitches together. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went to Macedonia. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside, fears within. Now you see that, right? There's a, there's a stitch in between those two verses. And you may have wondered what in the world's going on there. Where am I supposed to be? What am I looking at? But 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 14 until 2 Corinthians 7 verse 4 is kind of a tangent from Paul. So he's saying, hey, when I went to Macedonia, and then you could pick up right back in chapter 7 verse 5 and say, that's what happened in Macedonia. But now he's explaining, he goes on to a pretty lengthy explanation of why I live the way I live. And it goes on for like three or four chapters. And, And the basic gist of it is God always triumphs. And then even more, the ministry we have in the New Testament is far superior than the ministry we have from the Old Testament. And so over and over, he's saying, you want to know why I do what I do? You want to know why I speak so frankly and so boldly and so passionately? It's because God is always triumphant. And I can be bold. And we can all be bold together. That's kind of the summary of what he says in between these chapters. But here in, this, in these verses, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, he gives these two images that are familiar to those in Corinth, but maybe not as familiar to us. 
If you look at him in verse 14, he says that we are always led as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So they were familiar with that. In the Roman times, you'll see something like this. When Rome conquered one of its enemies, the general would come back and they'd have what is probably like a modern day parade. And they kind of go through the streets. And, and so Paul is, first of all, in verse, verse 14, he's saying, thanks be to God. I'm so grateful that God is always, that's a key word, isn't it? Always triumphant. Always leads us. Always. Not some of the times, not on occasion, not when we're doing well, not when we feel good. But always leads us in triumphal procession. And it's interesting that he uses the word in verse, verse 14, captive. Because if you think about that, that's not actually an inspiring image. When you read it at first glance, it's like, man, awesome, Christ's triumphal procession. But it's originally translated in the Greek, we are led as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. So why, why is that such a good thing to be thankful about? And so when they had these parades, they, they would flaunt their enemies, Rome would conquer someone, they would capture the prisoners, they'd come back and they'd be at the end of the procession and they'd kind of flaunt them and say, look what we did. Look what our gods did. And here's the result of that. We've captured them. And they're displayed saying, hey, our, our God is the, the sovereign God. Our God is the ruler. And so Paul, by using this, is saying, as Aaron mentioned in her communion, no, those other gods are unreliable. My God is the chief God and he's Always triumphant. And you know what? I used to be an enemy. Because that's the language Paul uses. Romans 5. I used to be an enemy. Enemy? I can't say that word sometimes. But I've been captured by this message. And now, you know what? I'd rather just be a captured prisoner than be a vice regent of Satan. And here I am. And I'm a part of this procession. And, and, it's, and it's pointing to this sovereign God who's always victorious. He's always the ruler. And now I've been captured by this. And I'm just on display demonstrating to the world the power of God. Which is very inspiring. It's very awesome. This is what it would look like more uh, specifically. So some of those are soldiers. Some of those are captives. And they have incense they're burning. So that's, that's what would have happened. This procession going throughout the streets of Rome. We won. We're awesome. Our God is awesome. Look at our prisoners. Look at our victory. And Paul's saying, no, God is awesome. And I'm a part of it. And he's always triumphing and being victorious. And then he uses this image of aroma as well. And so there's some cool things in the Bible about the image of an aroma. When God floods everything in Genesis, Noah builds an altar, and at the top, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said, okay, I won't curse the ground again. That's inspiring. God, God smells, so, so it has this Old Testament aroma imagery. If you read Leviticus in the middle there, there's a, there's a re reoccurring phrase. When you make a sacrifice, it's an aroma pleasing to the Lord. And at the bottom, Ephesians 5, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. And so there's this Old Testament background, and Paul is saying, man, we're this aroma that's spreading out, and, and like God smelled these sacrificial aromas, and he was pleased with it, and, and Christ is a sacrificial aroma that pleases us. And, but also, so they would have been familiar with that, but also at these religious ceremonies, pagan priests would burn incense as well. Basically to say, here comes our God. Let's, 
Let's get ready to meet our deity. And so Paul is, 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 is using that image but flipping it around and saying, well, when you, when you see us, it's the aroma of the true God. It's this fragrant aroma. And, and look, no other task is equal to this. Because when we come on the scene, people smell life or death. So when we come on the scene, when this aroma starts to burn, there's eternal consequences. And so this is intense as Paul is saying, look, the reason I can be bold is I'm in this, I'm in this procession as Christ. I'm this aroma that's pleasing to God. That's why I can be so bold. It's not because I have anything in me. It's all about God. And this has a lot of direct influence in our lives, doesn't it? First, I think it means that we have to be comfortable with being nothing. And I think Paul got used to that idea. I mean, if you track his life, he's often destitute or shipwrecked or hungry or starving or about to be killed or plotted or somebody's plotting to about to kill it. But, you know, there's all these kind of crazy things. He's in dest- and he just gets comfortable with it because he knows that's the moment when God's power is revealed the most. Martin Luther has a great quote. God creates us out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. I love that quote because the world screams, you need to be somebody. Let me coach you and teach you how to be somebody. And that's the moment you can show the world who you really are. The gospel says at your weakest, that's when God represents his most power. It's directly opposite to what our culture is screaming at us. And so I think this is helpful because we all have discouraging situations in our life, right? What if those situations that you find the most frustrating and challenging are the very precise moments when God is trying to reveal his power in you? How would that change your mentality and your lifestyle? Because often when we hit those moments, you can be confused or discouraged or, oh my goodness, what's going on? But instead, those are the very moments when we see how weak you really are and we see the true power of God being revealed in your life. As a church leader, I, you know, I'm aware of a lot of people's details and people's lives because we, we counsel and get involved in their lives. And, and you know what? I can attest that there's people in this fellowship that you have no idea what's going on in their life and there's some craziness going on in their life. But when you see them, they're fired up. They're focused on the mission. You would never know what's going on unless you specifically ask some very specific questions. And what is that about? That's a testament to the power of God. I mean, because if you knew, you'd be like, are you kidding me? How are you so fired up? That's the same thing with Paul. This is the reason why I can be so bold. Because God leads me in victory. And we have to be comfortable with being in those positions. Comfortable with being nothing to demonstrate God's power. And secondly, it's relevant to our lives because there's no other task like this. And that's a question that Paul says, who is equal to such a task? And the answer is nobody. Imagine that you and I have the responsibility of people's eternity to some degree. He says, we're this aroma. When you come on the scene, there shouldn't be a neutral reaction. When you start sharing your life, when you start sharing the gospel with people, it's life or death. It's not life, perhaps I'll think about it, maybe I'll give it another go, and at some point, no, it's life or death. 
And Paul knows this. When we, when, when we start burning this fragrant aroma of Christ, some are like, praise God, I want some of that. Kresh gets baptized Friday night. That's awesome. Some people are saying, I don't want to give up my kingship. I don't want to give up my life. That's death. But those are the reactions. Who is equal to such a task? And it's almost like this litmus test. When, when we get involved in people's lives, we reveal through the power of God, life or death. That's crazy to think about. Knowing who we are and our backgrounds, but by the grace of God, Paul says, that's why I'm so bold in this gospel because God is always triumphant in this aroma. What about your aroma? Are you bold, boldly calling other people to the gospel? What about your aroma in the fellowship? Are you boldly calling others to change because we have such a gospel? If not, start doing so because of God's triumphant procession. Amen? A couple things from this chapter this morning that we want to learn and apply to our lives is that we always want to be aware of Satan's schemes. Prayerfully you are, but sometimes we're unaware. And Paul wanted this church and wanted us to be aware that Satan is always scheming. Don't go to the extremes. Focus and target in on Jesus. And secondly, who is equal to such a task that we have? No one. But praise God that he has allowed us to spread this aroma of Christ in our schools, in our workplaces, in Auckland, eventually in Wellington, and in the spa region. To God be the glory. Amen. Amen.